bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Shenandoah. And me. I got 28 years in this farm. My blood, my sweat, and my tears in this farm. And no one's gonna come along and say that I owe any part, not the tiniest part, to anyone in any single way. This farm don't belong to Virginia. My sons bleed, but not for the south. This land here is Anderson land. By the strength of my hand and the sweat on my brow, for as long as the But first, how are we doing? I hope this, the latest episode of The Musical Man, finds you well. I am here with Patty and Benny. The team has been reunited in the wake of Patty's vacation. Oh, I think I've made this joke before, but reunited, and it feels so good. That's my melody. That's the melody I choose to embrace. (laughs) Here we are, and in this opening segment, I would like to address that original trailer for Mean Girls, the movie adaptation of the Broadway musical adaptation of the movie that we're all so excited for. If you were confused, confused by the trailer for Mean Girls, the movie musical, if you thought to yourself, uh, you know, there's not a lot of singing... In this movie trailer, uh, what's going on? I thought this was a musical. Why is there no singing in this trailer for a movie musical? Well, I'm here to tell you, it's not actually that difficult to unpack or untangle. No, no, no. In terms of Christmas light knot balls, this is a pretty small Christmas light knot ball. Here's the, here's the answer to your question. It's sexism and homophobia combined. Because I'm they do this all the time. These studios release trailers for movie musicals that feature no singing whatsoever. And it's because they think they can capture a segment, a demographic, by tricking them. By keeping the singing out of the equation. They think they can draw in straight men. I think that, honestly, they're trying to appeal to straight men who would be turned off by the presence of singing. Oh, that's for, you know, I hate to say it, but that's for faggots. Like, that, honestly, that is what they are so terrified of. They don't want their movie to be branded as something gay. Well, here's the thing, movie studios. They were never going to come in the first place because that type of guy that you're trying to woo and seduce into coming into the theater, they were never going to see a Mean Girls remake in general, all right? So by withholding the singing... You're not, you're not making anything happen. You're not tricking people. You're not expanding the audience. Fucking put the 
singing in the trailer. You got, they, they did this for Wonka too, right? We all know this. None of the Wonka marketing has focused on the fact that it is a fucking musical. We've had multiple trailers, TV spots. Where are the songs? It's homophobia. It's sexism because they just want the dads and the bros and all the straight dudes, and they're never going to come. They're not going to watch Wonka either. I'm done. I, I know. <laughs> I apologize if it if it was a if it was a uh, a bracing moment for you to hear the the homophobic slur that I threw out. But I swear I don't use it casually. I don't mean to. I really that's where I jump to. I really do because that's what I think that they think. I do. I do. I do. Oh goodness. Let's focus on the show facts for this week's subject. Shenandoah, a show I I did not really like, but we. <laughs> I will give it. I gave it. I should say the benefit of the doubt. And there will be moments of praise, sure. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But first, we have to do the show facts. Show me the show facts. All right, I'll do that. Let's do it. Shenandoah was a 1975 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on January 7th, 1975 at the Alvin Theater before moving to the Mark Hellinger Theater in March of 1977. The show ran for 1,050 performances, making it the 114th longest-running Broadway production in history as of this recording. Recording. The Pajama Game is a is number 113 with 1,063 performances, and the 1999 revival of Annie Get Your Gun is number 115 with 1,045 performances. In contrast, the 1989 Broadway revival of Shenandoah only ran for 32 performances, and I don't think that was a limited run. I think they wanted that to run for years and years, just like the original, but I'm afraid Lightning did did not strike twice. Ah! Shenandoah's book was written by James Lee Barrett, Peter Udell, and Philip Rose. The music was written by Gary Geld, who also wrote for Pearly, which, as a point of contrast, ran for 688 performances on Broadway. Gary Geld also wrote for the Broadway musical Angel, which ran for five performances. So, you know, I'm just trying to show you all of the... <laughs> it's, a, it's a spectrum of success that we're working with here. Lyrics are written by Peter Udell. Hello again, Peter. See above. Oh, I wrote see above. Yes, because Peter also wrote for Pearly and as well as Amen Corner, a Broadway musical that ran for 28 performances, and Coming Up Town, which ran for 45 performances. I'm sure they were very happy for the success of Pearly and Shenandoah because when it comes to Broadway, the rest of their projects were not really working out. The basis for for this week's subject is the 1965 film Shenandoah, which was written by James Lee Barrett. Ah, hello again, who wrote Smokey and the Bandit, if, if you're familiar with Smokey and the Bandit. The film was directed by Andrew V. McLaglen. Andrew V. McLaglen, who also directed uh, these famous films, The Wild Geese and Monkeys Go Home. We all know those films, right? As famous, if not more, than Smokey and the Bandit. The Broadway director, the director of the Broadway production of Shenandoah, 
Shenandoah, I should say, is Philip Rose, musical director Lynn Kriegler, orchestrations Don Walker, choreographer Robert Tucker, scenic design C. Orowski, lighting design Thomas Skelton, sound design Nada, no sound design, costume design Yes, Yada, Pearl Sumner, and Wynn Morton. And the original Broadway cast of Shenandoah was as follows. We begin with John Cullum. He was also the star of that ill-fated 1989 revival by Jove. We continue with Ted Egress, Chip Ford, Gordon Halliday, Joel Higgins, Penelope Milford, Joseph Shapiro, Donna Theodore, Ted Carrere, Stephen Dubove, Gary Harger, Brian James, Robert Johansson, Sherry Lambert, Craig Lucas. You might recognize that name, Craig Lucas, who is the book writer for The Light in the Piazza, An American in Paris, Amelie, Paradise Square, and the forthcoming Days of Wine and Roses. All right, okay. Craig Lucas will get a shout out later. Uh, okay, keep your ears open. We have Gene Masoner, Paul Mivrold, Dan Ormond, Edward Penn, Ed Preble, Casper Roos, Robert Rosen, David Russell, J. Kevin Scannell, Jack Starkey, E. Allen Stevens, Jordan Suffin, Marshall Thomas, and Charles Welch. As always, I do my best to pronounce these first and last names as accurately as possible. If I am making any mistakes, I do apologize. Tony nods. All right. Shenandoah was the winner of the following Tony Awards. Best Book of a Musical, which went to James Lee Barrett, Peter Udell, and Philip Rose, as well as Best Actor in a Musical, which went to John Cullum. Additional nominations were as follows. Best Musical, of course, but also Best Original Score, Peter Udell and Gary Geld. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Donna Theodore. And Best Choreography, Robert Tucker. So, that's six nominations in total, two awards when all is said and done. Let's talk about the plot. This plot summary is based on a reading of the book by James Lee Barrett, Peter Udell, and Philip Rose. We begin with a prologue. Our tale is set during the American Civil War, just before and after the Battle of Gettysburg, or thereabouts. The majority of the action takes place in the state of Virginia. We see the company has been divided into equal halves. The first half, arranged stage left, represents the Confederate Army, while the second, arranged stage right, represents the Union. As both sides sing about their inevitable victories on the battlefield, Charlie Anderson visits the grave of his wife, Martha. Allow me to quote from the book directly. Quote, Charlie says, It's not like you left it, Martha. It's nothing like you left it. It's war, Martha. Brother is fighting brother, and father is fighting son, and I remember you reading from the Bible where it's written that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Well, I'm still not religious, Martha, like you always wanted me to be, but I've got enough belief in me to know that God didn't create war. Quote, allow me to interject, woof is what I say. Unwittingly or not, Charlie is citing Abraham Lincoln's famous 1858 speech when he refers to a house divided. I don't think the character actually understands that he's making a double reference there between the Bible and his president. Uh, I don't think the show understands the irony all that well, but <laughs> such irony and so forth. We continue, quote, uh, Charlie continues, he says, quote, well, we've got some disagreement in our house now, our own family, but Martha, our house is going to stand, yours and mine, and our family, our blood is going to stay together. In God's name and in your memory, I promise. Quote, spoiler alert, he's gonna break the promise. Act 1, Scene 1. We enter the Anderson home, which is described by the book as, quote, warm and loving. It exemplifies the stability and the strength of a family's heart and soul, quote, 
Well, thank you very much for the, uh, <laughs> the feedback in terms of that. How am I supposed to make that happen on stage? Make the house exemplify the stability and the strength of a family's heart and soul. It's a set. Leave me alone. Charlie has seven children. One daughter, Jenny, and six sons, Jacob, James, Nathan, John, Henry, and Robert, who is often referred to as the boy or boy. James is married to Anne, who is pregnant. That's nine characters under one roof. But... Have no fear, most of Charlie's sons have absolutely nothing going on. I swear it's not that confusing. While waiting for Charlie to come home for breakfast, members of the family argue about the war. There is no dialogue that would actually clarify the terms of this argument, merely stage direction, calling for ad-libs, I guess, but we'll get to the gist of that argument soon enough. Robert, who will be referred to as the boy from here on out, is wearing a Confederate soldier's cap. Charlie arrives and promptly commands the boy to remove the cap, as it is rude to wear one's hat at the table. Charlie then proceeds to lead the family in prayer. Quote, Lord, we cleared this land. We dug the weeds, hauled the rocks, chopped down the trees, and burned the stumps. We plowed it and sowed it. We fought off the bugs and the worms and the varmints. We harvested, and then we cooked our harvest. Lord, there wouldn't be a damn thing on this table if we hadn't done it all ourselves. But we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. Quote, <laughs> this guy. Oh, by the way, <laughs> the boy found his cap at a nearby stream, which leads me to conclude it belonged to a dead soldier. But what do I know? I could be wrong. James believes the Andersons have ignored the war long enough. It's high time they do their part. They are Virginians after all, and what concerns Virginia concerns them. That's James's opinion. Charlie puts his cards on the table. Number one, he thinks of himself as an American citizen, not a citizen of Virginia, all right? The state pride stuff will not work on him. And number two, the Andersons do not own any slaves, which means they have no reason to fight in this war. They ain't gonna free any slaves, and they sure as hell ain't gonna help anyone keep their slaves. Full stop. James offers a clarification. He doesn't give a shit about slavery. He's merely concerned about the safety and well-being of their land and their family. Land and family are also at the top of Charlie's mind, but... If others wish to kill themselves in the name of guts and glory, that's their business. War is, and has always been a con job devised by those in power, and no amount of flag-waving will convince him otherwise. In other words, fuck the Union, fuck the Confederacy, and fuck the slaves. Everyone's full of shit, except for yours truly, our hero, ladies and gentlemen. Act 1, Scene 2. The Andersons make their way to church as the boy lags behind. He's not interested in hearing another sermon from Reverend Bird. Ah, no thanks. He chats with Gabriel, a slave who is about his age, and they agree to go fishing once Mass is over. Act 1, Scene 3. During his sermon, Reverend Bird addresses the, quote, Northern barbarians who have flooded like ravenous and homeless locusts across the Potomac River, quote. He believes every red-blooded Virginian owes a debt to their home state by thunder. I should note the congregation is made up almost entirely of women, save for the Anderson men, because all of the other men are off at war, you see. The stage directions state, quote, 
male chorus members may be dressed as women if necessary. Quote, hashtag progressive. Act 1, Scene 4. Charlie's daughter, Jenny, is approached by a fella named Sam. Sam is painfully shy and intimidated by Jenny's brothers, who watch them from afar, and so they arrange to talk in private after supper. Gabriel and the boy enter with fishing rods. Ah! Gabriel is curious to know what goes on in a church, as his master does not allow him to attend Mass. The boy paints a dreary portrait, quote, Hard benches and a hard sermon. That's what church is all about. Quote, Gabriel is surprised by this revelation. He says, quote, The cabin I stays in has got a hard dirt floor, and the bed I sleeps on, it's hard too. And the food I gets sits hard in my belly. And the words the massa talks to my face, they's mighty hard. Now, if everything I got in my life is hard, what's undecent about me sitting on a hard church bench? Quote, Gabriel goes on to explain that his master uses the N-word when he's angry, but when he's happy, he refers to Gabriel as boy. The boy, Charlie's son, sees no irony in the fact that he and Gabriel technically share a nickname. And even though Gabriel has described a life of abuse and want, the boy wants nothing more than to switch places with him. You don't have to go to church, Gabriel. You've got it made. The boy is an idiot, a real lemon of a human being. Gabriel's response to this tangent is fairly inexplicable. He says, quote, I don't think you'd be much good at being a slave, boy. It takes practice. Quote, har har, I guess. Act 1, Scene 5. A Confederate patrol led by Sergeant Johnson pays a visit to the Anderson home. Charlie offers them water while complaining about recent cannon fire. My chickens stopped laying and my cows are gonna dry. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Seriously, though, cut that shit out. Sergeant Johnson explains to Charlie that he intends to enlist the Anderson boys into his army. Come hell or high water. Charlie is not intimidated. Paraphrased, you're nothing but a low-down, gullible, goggle-eyed city boy, Sergeant. And I don't remember the state coming around after my babies were born to offer up a spare tit. He actually does say something along those lines. The state never came along with a spare tit. All right, long story short, the Andersons whip out their guns and the soldiers retreat in shame. Act 1, Scene 6. Sam nearly proposes to Jenny before realizing Charlie and the boy are hanging on their every word. The lovers skedaddle to hammer out the details while Charlie educates the boy on matters of the heart to quote one of the songs, quote, The pickers are coming, the pickers are coming, we won't have to summon a one. The fruit's on the vine now, it's sweeter than wine now, so ripe in the September sun, quote, and the boy's like, I get the metaphor, Pa, thank you, gross. A Confederate lieutenant delivers some troubling news. Sergeant Johnson and his men have been found dead on Anderson land. James is like, we're in it now, Pa. And Charlie is like, what do you mean we're in it? We ain't in it. The dead bodies never come up again, so I guess Charlie is right, for now at least. As if this scene weren't long enough, federal purchasing agents appear with an ultimatum. It's basically a parade. <laughs> and they say, sell your horses to the Union, or step aside so we can take them. A skirmish ensues. Jenny shoots an agent's gun right out of his hand, and to anyone who chooses to stage that moment, I, uh, I, I say to you, good luck. The Andersons win the day without sustaining a single injury, but how much time do they have left? 
When will the war come to claim them? And when it does, will anyone care? Act 1, Scene 7. Charlie returns to Martha's grave and sings a very long song that reveals nothing about him we don't already know. This land is our land, it ain't Virginia's land, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, well, no man is an island, Charlie, and you do live in a society whether you like it or not, so maybe grow a spine and develop a couple of goddamn principles. Try having a thought, you solipsistic prick. Act 1, Scene 8. Sam asks Charlie for Jenny's hand in marriage. Charlie lectures Sam on the importance of liking your wife, which is different from loving your wife. Paraphrased, women are irrational twits who withhold the truth from their husbands, so you'd better make damn sure you like one of them enough to marry him. Our hero, ladies and gentlemen. Act 1, Scene 9. Anne and Jenny discuss the highs and lows of married life while preparing for the wedding. It may not pass the Bechdel test, but this is the only scene that doesn't involve Charlie, and for that, I am grateful. It's, it's one of, I should say, not the only, it's one of the only. Put Charlie in a barrel and send him over a waterfall. That's my, <laughs> that's my command to you. Act 1, Scene 10. Moments before the wedding, Charlie asks Reverend Bird for his thoughts on the war. We already know Bird is a dyed-in-the-wool confederate, but at this point, he's lost nearly all of his sons, and that's, you know, a bummer. But no one should be surprised to learn I do not empathize with the Reverend. And you might say, you know, these characters don't have the benefit of historical hindsight like you do, Jonathan. It's really unfair to judge them for their beliefs by, your, you know, your modern standards. And to you I say, can it, can it, put it in a can. Sam and Jenny get married, and Sam immediately leaves to fight for the Confederacy, which seems like a real closeted gay man thing to do. Sorry, honeydew, can't have sex right now, or for the next several years, fingers crossed, God willing, I gotta go fight the Yankees with my handsome man pals! Ciao! Actually, before I move on, there's an exchange between Sam and Jenny we should focus on. In regards to his service, Sam says, quote, I have no choice, do you understand? Quote. And Jenny says, quote, do you? Quote. Jenny is implying Sam doesn't understand the power of his own free will or why he's even being called to fight in the first place. And the show would appear to agree with her. They were merely pawns. They didn't even know what they were doing out there. No, yeah, you're right. They were just following orders. War makes beasts of us all, and there isn't a single war in history that deserved to be fought. I'm sure 20th century European Jews would love to hear more about that theory. Am I saying all wars are justified? No, that would be stupid. Am I saying all wartime actions are justified? No, that would be stupid. But some things are worth fighting for, and if you refuse to fight and people die while your back is turned, their blood is on your hands. But we don't own slaves. Can it? Put it in a can. All right, the plot summary. Sam runs away to fight in the war because he's dumb and also gay, and 15 seconds later, Anne goes into labor. The boy ain't interested in all of that, and so he and Gabriel decide to check on their rabbit traps. Act 1, Scene 11. The Andersons are celebrating the birth of Anne's daughter when Gabriel enters with a shocking announcement. Union soldiers have kidnapped the boy. They thought he was a rebel because of that stupid cap he's always wearing. Charlie Jacob, 
Nathan, John, Henry, and Jenny vow to find and retrieve the boy, while James and Anne stay behind to look after the baby. Let me get this straight. Nobody thought it was a bad idea for the boy to run around with a Confederate cap on his head? No one thought, uh, I guess what they're thinking now is, oh, I guess they would think he was a rebel because of the cap. Yeah, that makes sense. Ah, dang. Oh, drat. Well, here we are, I guess. Yes, correct. As James would say, you are most definitely in it now. There's a moment near the end of this scene when Charlie and James essentially come to terms with one another. James attempts to clarify his argument uh, in regards to the war, his war argument. An argument that is in dire need of clarification, that's true. And Charlie's like, son, I get it, yeah, say no more. I've always understood where you're coming from, even if the audience doesn't, because if I weren't so much like me, I'd be just like you. I'm paraphrasing here. Whatever they were going for does not register, and it doesn't matter anyway, because none of these guys want to fight for the Union, so fuck them. Act 1, Scene 12. Charlie says goodbye to Anne, who has decided to name her daughter after his late wife, Martha. Ah, all hail baby Martha. Parting is such sweet sorrow, etc. Act 2, Scene 1. Gabriel informs Anne that he is now free. Free! The Yankees burned his former master's house down. <laughs> so? <laughs> Free! Vis-a-vis! -vis. They sing a song about freedom, and Gabriel heads south to find his parents, who were sent to Mississippi and Georgia. Anne knows it would be dangerous for Gabriel to go further south, but she doesn't say anything. She actually holds it back. She holds herself back from saying anything, and we never see Gabriel again. Bye-bye, Gabriel. Marauders wearing a combination of Union and Confederate rags descend upon and murder James and Anne. It's implied that Anne is also raped before being killed, in case anyone thought she went quickly. Nope. Ah, but do you see? This is what, this is the show talking. Ah, but do you see? They wore the colors of the Union and the Confederacy. Ideological mutants, these marauders be. Ah, and doesn't that make you think? Both sides are capable of great evil. Ain't no real difference between them. Ain't no heroes in a war. I thought I told you to can it. Also, I, I thought soldiers were merely the playthings of well-fed... Well-fed Washington fat cats. What happened to that? Well, uh, that too, says the show. It can be both, I reckon. As in Vogue once said, free your mind and the rest will follow. Act 2, Scene 2. The Andersons stop a train bearing Confederate soldiers. They've done this several times and liberated soldiers of every stripe in the process, but the boy has yet to be found. What ho? Sam is on this train? Sam! Sam! He orders his comrades to go home. Abandon this war, my handsome friends, for it is pointless. And the soldiers are like, <laughs> Gee golly, it's like a wicked spell has been lifted from my person. Who am I? Where am I? I never subscribed to the tenets of the Confederacy. Whatever those may have been, who knows? Everyone in Shenandoah is a fucking moron. Nazis! Nazis tried to pull this crap. Who? What? Huh? Me? And nobody felt bad for them. Oh, was there something going on? Camps, you say? Ha <laughs> ha. News to me. Fuck you. Go to jail. Die. 
You can't compare their experiences to that of the Nazis. That's unfair. The movie was released in 65, and the musical premiered on Broadway in 75. If they didn't want me to make these connections, they should have stayed home. Act 2, Scene 3. Charlie sets up a tent so Sam and Jenny can have sex. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so normal, and I'm sure Sam is... Super excited about that. <laughs> yes, the sex that we need to have. And we're having it now, you say. <laughs> As opposed to next week, or maybe even never. Got it. A Confederate sniper, played by Craig Lucas, mistakes Jacob for a Yankee and kills him with a single shot. The sniper apologizes to Charlie, who pumps him full of lead. <laughs> you killed my son! Bang, bang! The Andersons are repulsed. Pa, that ain't right what you done. He said he was sorry. <laughs> I love that. I love this part. He said he was sorry. And Charlie's like, how many times do I have to tell you I only require your loyalty and not your support? Act 2, Scene 4. The Andersons, having returned home to bury Jacob, are heartbroken to find the bodies of James and Anne. Luckily, baby Martha is alive, having been found by Reverend Bird, and Charlie promises to do what he can to give her a good life. Act 2, Scene 5. Charlie visits Martha's grave and begs for guidance. But Charlie doesn't want guidance, not really, because his worldview hasn't changed at all. He sings, quote, North or South, they're all our children, born of flesh in joy and in pain. They're yours and mine, our past and our future, sent to die in vain. Gray or blue, they're more than just numbers, more than tally scores in a game. The faceless have names, they're Jacob and James, Robert and Anne, our daughters and our sons, yours and mine, all our children. Everyone, quote, motherfucker still thinks people view the war as a game. That they couldn't possibly be fighting for something other than glory or gain. Charlie does not, he doesn't care. He doesn't give a shit about black people. And he doesn't give a shit about anyone who isn't on his family tree. He's an, he's an awful protagonist. And I do not feel sorry for him. The only man who wins a war is the Undertaker. Well, perhaps you should give the Undertaker another cost. Customer, Charlie. Stimulate the economy. Bing bong, ding dong. Bing bong, ding dong. Oh, are those church bells pealing in the distance? Charlie is inspired. After all, Martha always wanted him to go to church more often. He rounds up the surviving Andersons for another rousing pro-Confederate sermon from Reverend Bird. Act 2, Scene 6. As the Reverend screams about, quote, that verminous plague of blue-bellied locusts from the north, Quote, always with the locust metaphor. The one and only boy stumbles into the church. <laughs> Paul, I'm here. Whoa! He's alive. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Our beloved boy is home again. What happened to Gabriel? Not important. Is war always bad? Yes. But the reverend did get the final word on the matter, so maybe not. Maybe all hail the Confederacy. The South will rise again or something. <laughs> this sucks. If Charlie still believes the war is a joke, why does he go to a church led by a pro-Confederate reverend? I get that representation does not always equal endorsement, and I'm not always, I'm not always meant to view a character as wholly likable, but would it have killed 
Would it have killed them to make Charlie compelling at least? And if we're looking to prove how complicated war can be with the clashing of ideals and, uh, you know, assorted vested interests and whatnot, why is the voice of the Union almost non-existent in this show? As written, Shenandoah is about Confederates, a show that begs us to sympathize with their plights, and I reject that request. Like, uh, nope! <laughs> That's what I say, Confederates and Nazis. I don't want him in my shit. Anyway, the curtain falls, the end. For the purposes of this week's episode, I did not watch the 1965 film, which stars Jimmy Stewart as Charlie, but the associated Wikipedia article provided some interesting insights. Interesting! For one thing, we get to see what happens to the boy on the long and winding road that takes him back to Virginia. The journey involves a chance encounter with Gabriel, who is now a Union soldier. I'm not saying the inclusion of this material would have made Shenandoah the musical more entertaining, but it would have been more substantial, certainly. Gabriel's stage arc is quite obviously incomplete, and the boy's in dire need of deeper characterization. So, I didn't watch the film. What did I do? I read the 1975 book by James Lee Barrett, Peter Udell, and Philip Rose, which you can access via Scribda. S-C-R-I-B-D. Scribda. I watched the 1975 Jerry Lewis MDA Labor Day Telethon performances of Freedom and It's a Boy, and I listened to the 1975 original Broadway cast album of Shenandoah. Not a fan of that album art, I gotta say. I have this, I have had for so many years, this, this instinctual reaction when I see that album art. I think, oh, oh no. <laughs> that looks boring with a capital B. And uh, I wasn't uh, completely wrong. <laughs> Regarding those telethon performances, I wouldn't say those performances were a revelation necessarily, but they were definitely a pleasant surprise. It's nice to know the telethon can serve as a resource for the podcast. Broadway actors were a telethon staple, and those performances have been beautifully preserved, which is more than I can say of the Tony Awards. Additionally, I was struck by the warmth and camaraderie of the Shenandoah cast. Donna Theodore and Chip Ford are beaming throughout Freedom. Their affection for each other is so refreshing. And watching John Cullum kid around with his co-stars allowed me to see how audiences and Tony voters would have fallen in love with him. And can we talk about how these performances were perfectly calibrated for television? The ability to modulate for a different medium does not come naturally to every actor, but this cast is in the pocket. Not too big, not too small, but eh, just right. Unfortunately, their efforts are wasted on a studio audience that has no idea when to react, and when they do, the results are pathetic. A crew member has to actually shout, come on, after the freedom performance, because no one applauds, the song ends, there's no music playing, the actors aren't moving, they're not singing, it's dead silent in the studio. No one fucking applauds. How long have they been there? 48 hours? Come on now, wake up. Oh, allow me to circle back to the Tony Awards, all right? The cast did not perform as part of the 1975 Tony's broadcast, as that was the year everyone chose to focus on the history of the Winter Garden Theater. We've talked about this before. That was the theme. I'm sure I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Why bother showcasing the latest nominees for Best Musical when you can have Angela Lansbury knock out a couple of numbers from Mame and Gypsy? 
I adore Miss Lansbury as much as the as much as the next schnook. But Shenandoah, Mac and Mabel, the Wiz, and the Lieutenant deserved their moment in the sun, and they could have used the exposure. That's just good business sense. Well, I suppose the Lieutenant didn't need the exposure by that point. <laughs> it was already closed. <laughs> Higher than a tree And let it wave From sea to shining sea If it's good enough for Jackson And it's good enough for Lee Then hot damn Alabama It's good enough for me Noah's libretto went down about as easy as a fistful of pennies, but the telethon clips gave me hope as far as the score was concerned. I was optimistic, more than ready to fall head over heels. I said, show me what you got, Gary Geld. Show me what you're working with, Peter Udell. I'm ready. I'm ready now. That's what I said. Alas, this week's opening number, Raise the Flag of Dixie, uh, caused my gung-ho spirits to deflate almost instantly. We should be setting the table here, defining the sky-high stakes of the American Civil War and what that conflict means to those on either side. Instead, Geld and Udell approach the material about as seriously as their main character, Charlie Anderson. These are not adults. These are boys with toys who spew party-line rhetoric. There isn't a single moment of expression that feels earnest or personal, even when they're talking about their loved ones. Oh, Sarah, I'll give you my medals. Oh, Molly, I'll give you my ribbons. That doesn't, no, that doesn't work either. Why should I care if they're torn to shreds on the battlefield when I don't really see them as flesh and blood human beings? 
let's compare Raise the Flag of Dixie to the old Red Hills of Home from Parade. That number inspires both awe and fear. The rebel's portrait is detailed. The strength of his conviction is hypnotic and bone-chilling. He comes off as a real person. Brown does not sneer at Confederates because he knows how passionate and dangerous they were. Dismissing them as fools is not only irresponsible, it's dramatically unsatisfying, and that's the mistake Geld and Udell make with Shenandoah. Dixie is also just, it's so loud, <laughs> which is how I would describe a lot of these songs. Geld and Udell have a hard time identifying and resting within quieter moments. Everyone is constantly coming out of the gate with, or building to, a chest-thumping bellow, and it's tiresome. Even the love songs are loud. Anyone else get a January 6 vibe from these lyrics? Quote, Gonna march on down to Washington town and set me up a still. Gonna beat my drum and drink me some. Setting on Capitol Hill. They get beat and we get cheered. And I get a hanko. <laughs> I can't say this last part. And I get a hanko Abe Lincoln's beard. <laughs> Come on already. How many of those 1-6 assholes tried to claim ignorance and innocence when made to account for their crimes? Are we supposed to think of them as puppets, misunderstood stool pigeons? We need to understand where they're coming from. Oh, fuck off. Now, here's a sub-segment within this segment, the score deconstruction. I call this sub-segment the second pass. I went back and I listened to these songs a second time, not the whole album from start to finish, but the songs I wanted to focus on here in this, in this segment, the score deconstruction. So what did I think listening to this song a second time? I wrote down, you know how some theaters have TVs in the lobby that provide a live feed of the performance? I would prefer to watch this performance in the lobby. Thank you very much. Let's put some distance between me and this song. Ah. Stand and show your colors, let's all go to war. The Lord will surely bless us, I've heard it all before. I've heard it all a hundred times, I've heard it all before. They've always got a holy cause to march you off to war. Tyranny or justice, anarchy or law, we must defend our honor, I've heard it all before. I've heard it all a hundred times, I've heard it all before. They've always got a holy cause that's worth the dying for. Someone writes a slogan, raises up a flag. Someone finds an enemy to blame. The trumpet sounds, the calls of arms, who leave the cities and the farms. And always the ending is the same, the same. The same. The dream has turned to ashes. The wheat has turned to straw. And someone asks the question. The living can't 
John Cullum, I do. Your Broadway resume is a mile long. Here are just some of the highlights. Camelot, Man of La Mancha, 1776, On the 20th Century, Aspects of Love, Showboat, You're in Town, 110 in the Shade, August Osage County, The Scottsboro Boys, Waitress, Who Am I to Question, The Man Who Originated the Role of Caldwell B. Cladwell. Cullum's vocal chops are succulent, He's got more barrels in his chest than Donkey Kong could ever hope to handle. As the church lady would say, I am not worthy. And you know what? This number, I've heard it all before, ain't worthy either. It ain't worthy of Cullum's tools, talent, or time. Some characters get an I Want song that helps us to understand it, empathize with them. Charlie Anderson wastes nearly three minutes of stage time screaming about what he doesn't want. He does not want to help anyone who isn't related to him. He does not want to invest in causes that do not concern him. And he does not want a second opinion. I was never going to get on board with this guy. He's basically a modern-day know-nothing conservative. If Charlie feels this strongly about the folly of war, I'm sure he wouldn't have a problem saying that to Gabriel's face, right? Sing this song to Gabriel's face, you sanctimonious son of a bitch. P.S. How in the world did we not cast George Hearn as Charlie in the 1989 revival? I understand we wanted a victory lap for Cullum. That makes sense. But Hearn was in the mix. He was there. The role would have been beneath him as well. But God knows he would have kicked its ass. Now, here's the second pass. What did I think the second time I I listened to this? I, I wrote down, did Frank Wildhorn write this after taking a time machine back to 1975? And I also quoted these lyrics, quote, And someone asks the question, What was the dying for? The living can't remember. The dead no longer care. Quote, Fuck you, Charlie. The living can't remember. <laughs> the living can't... I don't know. <laughs> what was it even for? Do you even remember? I don't know. Fuck you. Why was I born when I 
Somebody puts the who in the folks like dropping a stone in a lake. So maybe I'm thinking I'm Abraham Lincoln and somebody made a mistake. Why Am I Me is the only song Gary Geld and Peter Udell wrote for The Boy, a character who is snatched up by Union soldiers, dragged halfway around the country, and spends God knows how many months trying to get back to his family in Virginia. As a reminder, all of that happens offstage. We never see a moment from that journey. And the show seems to be saying, why would we set any of those moments to music when we could have the boy sing flat-ass notes with Gabriel? Why make the boy a well-rounded second lead who has his eyes opened to the scope and depth of the American Civil War when we could depict him as a dullard who yearns to switch lives with a slave. But seriously, folks, what is going on with those vocals? I know Chip Ford can sing. I presume Joseph Shapiro could sing if he had any additional opportunities. Why are you forcing them to sound like ghosts with unresolved business? Tell you what I'm thinking, honestly and true. How come I come to life as me and not to life as you? Congratulations, my hackles are up and my stomach is turning. I feel bad. Second pass thoughts. Quoting the lyrics, I listened to it a second time and I wrote these lyrics down. Quote, why was I given the body I'm living in? Quote, also, quote, so maybe I'm thinking I'm Abraham Lincoln, and somebody made a mistake. Quote, uh, secret trans anthem? Hello? I don't want to play any audio from the song Next to Lovin' I Love Fightin' because all you really need to know about that number are, <laughs> let me just share this little bit of lyri lyricism with you. Quote, next to lovin' I like fightin', I like fightin', it's excitin'. Next to love and I like fighting, I like fighting, it's exciting. The this is the kind of song that should immediately end after one verse and one chorus, if not sooner. You made your point, I don't need to hear, next to love and I like fighting, I like fighting, it's exciting. I don't need to hear that four times, guys. Come on. a seedling into a flowering tree to bloom in another man's garden for another man's eyes to see raised her up sweet and appealing pretty as a flower can be and now I'm bothered by the feeling that soon she'll be leaving me. You'll see. The are coming. The pickers are coming. We won't have to summon a one. The fruit's on the vine now. It's sweeter than wine now. So right in the September sun. 
Pickers are coming With footsteps are drumming They'll soon be a-running this way A meadow is blooming A bloom is perfuming The harvest will be any day When I was making my way through Shenandoah's book and came upon the lyrics for The Pickers Are Coming, I assumed they would be set to a light, jaunty tune. Charlie is singing about his only daughter and how it won't be easy for him to watch her go, but he's also meant to be educating the boy. I thought they were having kind of a, a fun back and forth. I thought they were ribbing each other, some of that ho-ho-ho, birds and the bees crap. The boy even makes a callback to this song in a later scene, like it's an inside joke between father and son. All the pickers are coming, Paul. Can you blame me for expecting the song to have, to demonstrate a sense of fucking frivolity? Well, that ain't what I got. Instead of sounding like a loving or bemused papa, Charlie sounds like another character from the musical theater canon, that being Judge Turpin from Sweeney Todd. Charlie, my man, lay off the gas when it comes to the psychosexual ruminations. Are you having a chat with your son on the porch on a warm Virginia evening? Or are you naked and alone in your unfinished basement, your hands at your temples, as the darkness threatens to consume you? You made it weird, Gary Geld. You fell off, Peter Udell. And then here's what I wrote down on the second pass. I, I wrote, God, deliver me, God. I couldn't stop thinking about Judge Durpin. Somebody put this man in a straitjacket singing about blooms and the ripening of the fruit. Blech! Too many fruit ripening metaphors in this fucking score. They're kind of peppered throughout the whole fucking thing. Enough with the fruit and the ripening and the blooms. The blooms! You're grossing me out. Favorite chair, we 
Here's how I feel about the song, we make a beautiful pair. I like it! The lyrics may not amount to much. Investigating the nuances of romantic love was uh, clearly never on Udell's to-do list, but I enjoy the delicate piano line we get up top. And you know who makes a beautiful pair? Donna Theodore and Penelope Milford. I dare say this could have been a breakout hit on the radio. Maybe we get Miss Dolly Parton to do a cover with, uh, someone? I don't know. He is the collarbone, I am the spine, I am the clay jug, and he is moonshine. Look at me, Ma, I'm a Broadway lyricist. Jonathan, don't be snide. Oh, sorry, Ma. And then I wrote this down for my second pass. Thoughts? Still digging that piano line is what I wrote. Shit kinda goes off. Kinda fucking slaps. Kind of slaps. <laughs> Freedom ain't a state like Maine or Virginia. Freedom ain't across some county line. Freedom is a flame that burns within you. Freedom's in the state of mine. Freedom, 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 freedom. Freedom is a flame that burns within you. Freedom's in the state of mine. La, 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 la. Freedom by riding on a train. The only way to freedom is right on through your brain. Whoa, 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 whoa. Freedom is an ocean sweeping the nation. Freedom is the right of all mankind. Freedom is a body's imagination. Freedom's in the state of mind. can sing if you actually allow him to sing. Giving him those flat-ass notes in the first act, what the hell was that all about? Okay, I've decided I am into this, the whole freedom number. The song is called Freedom, in case you couldn't pick up what Peter Udell was putting down. Freedom, 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 we got it, Peter. The lyrics ain't exactly thought-provoking, are they? Schoolhouse Rock would do a better job of unpacking the concept of freedom, and that is not a backhanded compliment in the slightest. Freedom is a state of mind. I'm pretty sure freedom is also granted or withheld by laws. 
But sure, go off, king. Go off, queen! I can't be too mad about it, because A, I'm tired, and B, Donna Theodore and Chip Ford sound amazing on this track. My advice, don't pay attention to what they're singing about. Listen to how they sing it instead. Why do they only do the ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba? Why do they only do that gag the one time? That seems like something we would circle back to. Rule of three, even, maybe, and all of that? Second pass thoughts, I wrote, LOL, I skipped over, like, 80% of this score, and I'm fine with that. Yeah, in fact, that's all I have to say about the score. It's time to hear from our fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. How you doing? <laughs> oh, you caught me in the middle of one of my experiments. <laughs> How you doing, Willy Wonka? Nice to meet you. Oh, boy, you might be wondering to yourself, what does Wonka stand for? Let's start with the WW stands for Wonka. Wonka, Willy Wonka, that's me. Oh, stands for, oh my God, it's Willy Wonka. You're really standing here in fucking front of me. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, is he gonna sing? No, he's not gonna fucking sing, because I'm already in the middle of something. I'm trying to deconstruct my fucking name. N stands for Nesta. I'm a Nesta boy. <laughs> Maybe if we get a couple of drinks in me, I can show you how nasty I can be. K, what does the K stand for? It's kleptomaniac. Everything you see here I've stolen. I've appropriated it for myself, and I'm not ashamed of it. Oh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Call the cancel cops on me. <laughs> the cancel cops are coming for Willy Wonka. I'd like to see the day when they can catch me. When they can catch me. And the A stands for Achoo. I'm sick. I never got the vaccine. Oh, what am I doing here? You might be thinking to yourself, what, 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 what's she doing here? I'm making coffee, of course. I'm making coffee. I'm out of the candy game. Chocolate is out, babe. I'm focusing on, I'm focusing on the five, six, seven, eight coffee. It's my brand of choice. You see this can here? This can of fine five, six, seven, eight coffee grounds. I stole it. I took it for myself. Now, I ask you a question. How do you take your coffee? Black, sugar, totally and shine. <laughs> I like you. You're my friend. We're going to be here in this bunker for the next 15 years. That's right. When the door closed behind you, it's never going to open again. Hey, you ever think to yourself, if I was a cup of coffee and I was dying of thirst, would I drink myself? <laughs> I know I would. Okay, shut the fuck down. I'm going to sing you a song. Ah! Final thoughts regarding Shenandoah. <laughs> I'm thinking about that Wonka ad. God help those people. God help these people if they thought Shenandoah was a commentary on the Vietnam War, which ended three months after the show premiered on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> Did they think? I would love to read an interview with any of these writers. My God, well, it's kind of a commentary on the Vietnam War. I'm sure. <laughs> you fucking idiots. Now, in 1975, as a reminder, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was The Wiz, the super soul musical Wonderful Wizard of Oz. 
and the additional nominees that season were Mac and Mabel and the Lieutenant, which means, right, yes, oh my gosh, we only have one more show to cover in this set of nominees because we've talked about Mac and Mabel, the Lieutenant, and now Shenandoah, which leaves the Wiz. Oh, I did enjoy my time with Mac and Mabel, but I gotta say, the Wiz is keeping that medallion, babe. You're the best musical. I don't see that changing anytime soon. Let's rank Shenandoah against all of the other shows we've talked about here on the podcast. As a reminder, you can find this ranking of ours by going to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. There is a pinned post at the top of that page. That'll take you to our link tree. The link tree will take you to our spreadsheet. And on the second tab of said spreadsheet, you will find this ranking. Shannon Doa, you are going to go into our 101 slot. You are number 101 between Shrek the Musical, that's at 100, and Cats at 102. <laughs> no further changes to announce. Nothing to announce in, in that regard. Let's keep moving into the show-related ephemera segment. I want to talk about that show I mentioned a long time ago, Coming Uptown, which features lyrics by Peter Udell and music by Gary Sherman. As you may or may not recall, Coming Uptown only ran on Broadway for 45 performances, but... That may have been a limited run, considering the show is based on A Christmas Carol. That's right, another musical version of A Christmas Carol that I was not aware of. That discovery blew my mind. There is no cast recording. The show doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. All I have to go on are the facts provided by the Internet Broadway database. So here are some facts for you. Gregory Hines himself played Ebenezer Scrooge. This was in 1979, by the way. Loretta Devine played Young Mary. John Russell, who played Harry the Horse in the 1976 revival of Guys and Dolls, played Bob Cratchit. Tiger Haynes, who originated the role of the Tin Man in The Wiz, played Marley. And Francis Lee Morgan, who played a crow in The Wiz, played Time. There's a, there's a personification of time in this show? Huh? Song titles include Christmas is Coming Uptown, Somebody's Got to Be the Heavy, that's a Scrooge number, Get Your Act Together, that's a song for Marley, Get Down, Brother, Get Down, that's sung by the Ghost of Christmas Present, and The Presence. That's the name of his backup group, The Presence. Nobody Really Do. That's a Christmas Future song? They give Christmas Future two songs. Nobody Really Do and Goin' Gone. I, I mean, that's actually pretty amazing that they allow the Christmas Future character to talk. And I have one more song title for you. One Way Ticket to Hell. Can you believe we never recorded this musical? I mean, come on, you're killing me. All right, I did find a regional performance of Somebody's Got to Be the Heavy on YouTube. And, uh, you know, well, I'll say this. It was a very, very uh, amateurish performance. No offense to those involved, but maybe that's uh, coloring my perspective. But my takeaway was, this song isn't great, but who cares? Revive this thing. Encores, come on, record it. To determine which which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, The Skirt in the Skirt. Everyone ready? And away we go! Alright, are you ready? Are you ready for this information? Okay, the next show we're going to discuss is a 1993 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran on Broadway for 840 performances, and the name 
of that show is Blood Brothers. Blood Brothers, yes. The release date for that episode, Wednesday, December 6th. Mark your calendars. Never sure who's at the door. I love that song. I can't wait to talk about it. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. You can donate one, three, five, or $10 a month what does $1 a month get you? Well, it gets you Monday early access to all of these main feed episodes. You get a verbal shout-out each and every week. Thank you so much for donating at least $1 a month. Caroline, Helena, Greg, Andy, Elizabeth, Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Harry, Maddie, Jonathan, Mark S., Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get 19 bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, a trailer review for the film Cats, The Little Mermaid Live, a full review of the film Cats, Emma at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, Original Cast Album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, a review of the trailer for Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, Vivo, the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, Diana, Annie Live, The Notebook at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Beauty and the Beast, a 30th celebration, and hey, what if I told you we have more $1 a month tier bonus episodes coming your way? Here is the plan. For every five main feed episodes we produce, we will produce one brand new $1 a month tier bonus episode over on the Patreon feed. That's starting with this episode, okay? This is episode number one. So after four more main feed episodes, you're going to get one of those bonus episodes on the $1 a month tier. But... We're not done. You also get season one, that's 12 episodes of Radio Boy, and all 16 episodes of M3, the movie musical man. It's true, what's Radio Boy about? Well, that's a series for which I uh, check in with myself via the non-musical theater songs that make me feel more like myself, and M3, the movie musical man, and every episode of that show, we watch and discuss a trilogy of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. $3 a month will get you everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. All ten episodes in our Wildcats Everywhere podcast that's dedicated to the high school musical franchise. And a special one-off all about Julie and the Phantoms. We have completed our run of TV VIP, a series dedicated to musical television shows. All of those episodes are now available, all 14 of them. What do we talk about? We talk about Schmigadoon, Central Park, Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, Up Here, Cop Rock, Little Voice, Rags to Riches, Gallivant, Hull High, Shangri-La Plaza, and Gem, along with musical episodes of these non-musical TV shows. Rocco's Modern Life, Xena, Warrior Princess, Daria, Pepper Ann, Allie McBeal, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, even Stevens, Scrubs, Fringe, Grey's Anatomy, The Flash, Once Upon a Time, The Magicians, Lucifer, and Star Trek Brave New Worlds. If you subscribe to the $5 a month tier, you get everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. 
You get seasons one and two. That's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera and all 14 episodes in our Broadway in Chicago review series. You also get volumes one through five of Shout About It. Those are collections of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shout outs from the first 125 episodes of the show. Our final tier is the $10 a month tier for which you get everything I've already described, plus exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed, all 12 episodes in season one of The Snub Club, and all 12 episodes in our Turn It Off series. The Snub Club is dedicated to Broadway musicals that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and Turn It Off is dedicated to Off-Broadway Musicals. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please take a moment to write a five-star review, please. If you're listening to the show via Spotify, Audible, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com, hello, you're utilizing our streaming options. Oh, good for you. You can email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. I sure do wish you would. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny out in Chicagoland, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Oh, you know what that sound means, yes? Just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night. Your jobs! Take the bread out of your mouth!